everyone. Uh, Jonathan Prince from Calibre Design back again uh, for our podcast series of Talking Innovation. Um, and we have, where we're having conversations with some of the key, I reckon, some of the New Zealand's key uh, business leaders and innovators. Uh, for those of you who don't know Calibre Design, we're a mechanical design consultancy. Um, and we work in that design and innovation space. Um, we specialise in mechanical design and, and product and, and machinery, so you know that's what we focus on. Um, and uh, we're talking to a number of a number of companies and, and clients and business leaders uh, around New Zealand that, that operate in that product and, and machine design space. Um, yeah, so today, no further ado, we're talking to uh, Timothy Allen or Tim Allen um, from. Uh, Locus Research. He was the managing director and um, owner uh, of Locus Research, and more recently, the CEO of Ubco, a utility bike company uh, based out of Tauranga. Phenomenal uh, company that have uh, developed a two-wheel drive utility bike uh, that most of you will know and recognise. Um, and uh, Tim's been with that company from right from its infancy, from startup all the way through um, to now, where it's produced something like what four thousand bikes or something. Tim, does that does that sound about right? Yeah, it's probably a few more than that now. I think. Right. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. So, bit of background. Tim and I, we go way back. Um, so, and we've been in this design. Um, innovation and sustainability space, and I want to talk. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that today. Um, in my view, Tim is one of New Zealand's uh, leaders uh, in sustainable design, and um, and he was ahead of his game. Um, so we we met early on, um, early two thousands, and Tim was right in the, involved with uh, sustainable design, life cycle thinking, um, voice of the customer, all of the stuff that's actually really really progressive. Um, and um, uh, I've learned a lot from Tim over the years, and we've worked together over uh, on a number of programs for a number of different uh, companies as well throughout New Zealand. Uh, and it's been it's been a hell of a journey uh, from from my perspective. We've had a lot of fun, had a lot of heartache <laughs> as well. Um, and so I'm really keen to talk to, uh, talk through with Tim today uh, about his his journey and his stories and <laughs> some of the grief he's gone through. Because as we know, product design and I've said it <laughs> a million times. You know, it's a tough gig. And it's um, you know it's it's a it's a hard game, and it's easy to get it wrong. It's hard to get it right, but when you do get it right, it's 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 incredible, and, and you make phenomenal products. And um, Tim's done exactly that. So um, <clears throat> just talking about some of the products that you've that you've made, just as, as a sort of a um, um, uh, in, intro. So that we talked about the Abco, you've done the inverse. Um, here conditioning system, which is very very cool. Um, we've done the the hip protector um, for elderly, which I think is a is an amazing product and probably hasn't got the traction that it really actually needs uh, in um, in the community. Um, and a number of other products. Uh, well, you've done tons um, through through the years. Um, yeah, and oh, some of <clears throat> some of your legacy too. Some of Tim's legacy here um, has been has done a lot of work in the community. Um, he established the Young Innovators Award out of Tauranga, which is absolutely phenomenal. I've been to a few of those um, events, and that's <clears throat> around 
um, growing and, and nurturing um, young uh, entrepreneurs, young innovators. Um, you, you had the uh, field days competition that you started up where you'd actually um, come across the UBCO bike, um, co-founding the, um, the, the Wintech um, Technology uh, Incubator, uh, WNT. Um, so there's, you know, <clears throat> huge history there in design and innovation and, and um, you know, stalwart in the, in the New Zealand community here. So no, no further ado, that's enough for me. I want to get, in, get into the questions. So, you know, back in the day... <laughs> You started with fine arts. I've never thought of you as a fine arts guy, but uh, well, once I got to know you, probably uh, yeah, I understood understood it. Um, but you know, how did you segue from fine arts into um, product design and and your sustainability venture? Which you know, I like to say sustainability. You know, it's it's the buzzword now. It's it's big on everyone's mind and all the rest of it. But back in the day, you were <clears throat> at the cutting edge of it, and it was. Uh, you know, being there myself, you know, it was, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't accepted by everybody and it, and it wasn't an easy sell. Um, so, yeah, I'm really interested to see how you got there. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose I drew and painted from quite a young age. So, um, I, fine art to me was, it probably was where I thought I wanted to be. Um, and I think my bursary subjects were, um, sculpture, painting, history, art history and English, right. which if, if people had tripped over me now, they might struggle with a little bit. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the thing about uh, art is it, it teaches you a sort of, it's sort of like everything has, has meaning and it has a reason for existing. So art is... It does teach you a lot of perspective um, about yeah. things that sometimes um, actually surprisingly helps you a lot in in the commercial domain. And so I, I then I, I did a diploma of fine art at the Waikato Polytech, found design. It was sort of a multi-purpose or generalist course. Um, did a lot of different disciplines, ceramics, photography, and I found design. And I was, oh, this is quite cool. One of my lecturers, Javier. And then um, I then sort of stood back and thought, well, actually, maybe design is something that I'd like to do. And so I, I did some research, found the best school in New Zealand was down in Wellington, um, applied for and got into that course. It had a, it, luckily for me, uh, it was a four-year course, and the first year was a general year, so everybody was in the soup. didn't matter whether you're doing illustration, photography, fashion design, product design, graphic design, interaction design, everyone did the same general year together. And then when you got to the end of the year, you had to choose what professional discipline you were going into. And at that point, I saw the product design exhibition. And so I just was blown away by the physicality of it. And I, I don't even actually, to the extent that I don't even remember making the decision other than the decision seemed to make itself, I was going to do product design. Um, in the first professional year, I sucked uh, <laughs> because a lot of the guys in my course, they were very practical. They came from, you know, engineering sort of families and things like that. So they, their ability to make stuff was just amazing. And... I struggled through that year, by the, and so that was second year. Then I got to third year. Third year, the project started to get a little bit more complex, and then so I started to also learn 
I got better, but also the projects required more of you from a thinking kind of perspective. And so I started to suddenly improve in the way, you know, because it was a lot to do with how you thought about something. And then going into fourth year, that's when it changed quite significantly because, you know, when I reflect on it, the thing was, it's sort of the same as developing products really. You know, I just sat down and thought, okay, well, my friend Thomas just got just about pretty much failed his major project, which is 40% of your year's mark, because he failed to paint his model. Yeah, and I was like, you know, screw that. I'm not having that happen to me. Right. You know, the project was brilliant, but like that's... He hadn't that's, painted his model. He hadn't painted his model. Genius. There's an idea for you. Yeah, exactly. So I... You know, like, and I, so I basically, in my summer vacation, I went down to Christchurch, met with MacPac, asked them to be my industry partner. They agreed. So Fraser McLaughlin, who now runs Ground Effect, started Ground Effect, was then the leading designer. Sam Maitland was the younger designer who was doing a lot of the expedition sort of equipment stuff. Both very clever guys. Yep. And so I started the year with the project with an industry sponsor um, when people were, arrived at school not having any idea what they were going to do started at the end of February thinking about what they were going to do so by the end of the first term I had finished my research finished my first prototype and um, by the end of I'd probably I'd finished so I prototyped tested evaluated improved and revised the design came down to Christchurch made all the final prototypes and products myself and then I gave it to the best prototype seller in New Zealand who then sewed everything in my final for me and so I came back six weeks before the end of term complete done and dusted so I then spent the next six weeks with a friend of mine full-time building an interactive and that was the first digital presentation um, of the course ever so prior to that it was slideshows Right. And we had animations, we had everything. It was the full Twinkie show because my presentation was my friend's, who's an interaction designer, was his final project. Oh, wow. That's yeah. cool. So what I, what I learned in that year was obviously that it was much more about thinking Yeah. because I'd thought ahead around what I needed. I'd focused on the biggest block. I sacrificed smaller courses for my major project because they didn't matter. Right, yeah. And I knew that. And so, and then, you know, so I'd, and I guess I'd, in my final year, I'd also started to sort of um, wrestle with this idea that the discipline that I was in, you know, you're designing mass-produced products. And so I'd started to go, well, is this actually, am I okay with this? So do I, if I make something that gets, you know, people make a million or millions or something, you know, can I manage that in the way that I think about things? And I guess the way that I thought about it is I can probably, I can probably do things in a different way that can have a positive impact. So that, that was probably 1995. Right. Yeah. Gee, yeah, that, so that's, yeah, really progressive. You know, it's only in terms of the sustainability perspective. Yeah. yeah. And then obviously, so I was already, and then from product design, in my final year, I'd already really mentally moved beyond that into kind of more research and development because right. my project was quite wide-ranging. It looked all at, at all the technical factors. It looked at all the materials, the, you know, the anthropometrics behind how the body moves and how you can 
helped people move. It, it, it developed the brand. You know, so I, for that project, yeah. it, it was sort of how I think about product design. It was almost like a prototype for what it would be like going forward, which right. was really the whole thing the rather than yeah. just the product. It was the product, the brand, and everything about it, how it's going to be sold, constructed, used by the people. Um, and obviously, you know, to be fair, it's still it's still only a school project, but you know, it was it certainly helped me form the way that I was looking at things. And I suppose because I'd come out of that fine art background, I never ever let go of the way things are presented or the way that they look. Yeah, yeah. You know, like the the you know, and so those sort of things they that certainly differentiated me a lot from a lot of the other designers that I probably took things to a much higher level in relation to kind of how things were presented or communicated to the extent that some people saw that and not the work. Right. Yeah, certainly earlier on because obviously, you know, when we presented that um, that presentation, um, you know, I think some of the industry people there had never ever seen a presentation like that even in commerce. Right. And so well, that's all they, they actually almost saw that above the work that sat underneath it. Yeah, interesting. interesting. <clears throat> yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So, so I'm guessing then your your mate who did, who did all that um, probably got a pretty good mark for his presentation as well for his final project. Hey, well, you know, we've always had we're great friends even to this day. And what I did was I just backed up straight after I finished my thesis, and he was applying to go into RCA, and then we would work nights at Origin Design. Um, you know, in Wellington uh, on his folio. So, you know, I, I paid the piper and then he, he went on to RCA, ended up working in Interval Research in, in Palo Alto and then right. IBM, Collaborative User Research Lab, Microsoft Black Ops, and now he's sort of, you know, a senior guy in Adobe. So, you know, like he's he's gone on as a friend of mine, Bernard Kerr. Oh, very cool. Well done, Bernard. Um, <clears throat> so at that point, <clears throat> you kind of you actually just touched on um, voice of the customer. Um, and for those of you that um, are unaware, so um, we've both got a really <clears throat> strong background in, in, in voice of the customer. So understanding what the customer need, what that latent unmet need of the customer is before you actually start developing the product. Um, so you're, you're actually creating something that people actually want and people are actually going to buy and it adds value to their life and all the rest of it. Sounds like you're already down that track by that stage, were, yeah. were you? Yeah, well, I mean, research has always been, um, I don't know, it became, it has been a significant part of how I looked at things. And I'm, I'm not actually quite sure when it sort of started um, or whether I already always had that orientation. Um, but, yeah, I always enjoyed the process of, you know, unveiling something. And I definitely over time developed this view through over a lot of different projects for different people that basically the answer is there and there's probably one dominant answer to a problem. And if you just basically allow the process to work the way it should do, then you probably are going to find it. And when you do, there's almost a big mental click when you find yeah, it. Yeah. And so look, that the voice of the customer is one aspect, but in a lot of the stuff that I've done, 
there is and always going to be this technology component to it or a science component to it which might be pushing in from the other direction. Um, and then what you're trying to do is sort of almost find the overlapping ground because obviously if you just get pure technology push or pure customer pull, often neither create yeah, yeah. completely That's durable right. solutions. Yeah. So you're sort of working sort of on, you're looking at that intersection. And so sometimes, you know, like when I was working on design of our sleep system, it was, you know, there were some technical material considerations because of some of the environmental aspects of producing a sleep system. Yep. Um, and then there was, um, you know, anthropometric factors, which is, you know, what, what, how can you, how do you give someone uh, the correct sleep position? But obviously, not everybody, if you just ask someone, choose your most comfortable bed, a lot of people aren't going to choose something that's actually good for them yeah. physically. Like yeah. they might end up with a slouch on one side of their spine, not realizing that tendons elongate yeah. on one side over 10 years. Yeah. So you're trying to you know, find that middle ground and, and bring all that information together. So it's, look, the combination of the physical hard factors and the soft factors, the unquantifiable ones, subjective ones, that's always been the kind of probably black art in relation to kind of developing products probably. Yeah, exactly. Very, very similar to, um, to uh, the, the, the issues or the, the challenges we had with the life chair as, as well too, you know, trying to fit that human body. It's um, uh, a yeah. very, very interesting one. So Locust Research, um, for those of you who don't know Locust Research, um, they – um, as the name suggests, that they're very much um, a, a research and design company. Um, so very, very strong on that voice of the customer, understanding that 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 unmet need of the customer we talk about. Um, we used to bring in Locus all the time um, when we were trying to understand um, what it was we really needed to, to, to develop, um, and they were absolute masters at it. Um, so you set that up in Tauranga in... 2002. 2002, and that was was that on the back of Design Mobile? Yes, yeah, so I, I, I first moved to Tauranga in 1997 um, to work for Design Mobile, and um, that was for Dave McFarlane, who um, we've been uh, reconnected recently yeah, <laughs> with the project. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so Dave, Dave's a very, um, like Bruce McIntyre, you know, the way that Design Mobile was run was so far ahead of its time yeah, um, in so many place. different respects uh, in both design, sustainability, and, and definitely, like, I was able to do things in the area of sustainability that certainly underpinned a lot of my learning um, at Design Mobile because of his kind of outlook and the way that the company was geared in terms of, you know, it was definitely something that he pushed as as the yeah, owner. Yeah, yeah. And so so I was there, I'd been there for five years. Dave and I had talked about it, so I sort of essentially started Locust with his blessing. Um, and I couldn't have started it w without their support. Um, so that really helped me. And, and look, Tauranga was a funny place. I always kind of knew, like, if you were working in Auckland or probably in Australia, that you, you could probably, you know, you could multiply the number of projects and yeah. resources and, and so on you could have. But I, I was able to do 
the the work that interested me from Tauranga, and so I just basically carried on. Right. Yeah. No. How very very cool. And so that was two thousand and two. Yeah, and Tauranga wasn't really at that point. Like it's developed a reputation for being innovative, but to some extent that's emerged. It, it certainly wasn't there in 2002. No, no, no. no uh, um, yeah, uh, I'll bet. So we talked about that sustainability and, and the fact you're ahead of, ahead of your time. So, you know, what challenges does that do that um, give you? Like, Yeah, well, you've, you've got to integrate it into your work. Like I adopted the approach that you can't, like if it was offered as something that was discretionary then it would be discretionary Um, and particularly back then so I mean if people wanted to work with you it happened full stop end of fucking story Um, so and and, you know certainly as as my career developed let's say I've gone to more kind of uh, perhaps senior environments and was asked to participate at like, you know, an offsite strategy for a company or an organisation, that's probably where sometimes, you know, I struggled not to get, uh, I struggled to not get fired because, you know, some of those situations, you know, people's inaction was really hard to accept. I mean, these are responsible people that are highly educated, highly skilled, and yet the, you know, they're not seeing this issue that's directly in front of them. It affects themselves, it affects their children, it affects what they're going to go and do in the environment that they love, yeah. yet they can't make the direct connection or couldn't. Yeah. And so, yeah, I certainly found that frustrating and I had to be, I mean, you know what I'm like, I probably, I said it, yeah. um, but I could have said it even harder than what I did. I had to almost sort of dial it back a notch or two to not get fired, to still be able to help them right. at least consider the possibility. But at, at times it was very frustrating because, um, it, you know, what seemed to be something that was necessary, you know, you, you people were willing to sit. I mean, I, I guess people would have these conversations like this, it would be rather than it's the right thing to do, which it clearly is, um, you would be having this conversation around, you know, what the metric benefits of doing it were. Right. Now, I mean, I, I'm a commercial person, right? So when I was at Design Mobile, I said, we're going to do this project. It's going to save 30 cents a unit. It's going to save a million dollars a year, and it's going to double the throughput. Yeah. And, and it's going to be better. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's going to have full ISO class labelling. The material is better. It's less wasteful. We've halved the amount of material that we're using, yada, yeah, yada, yada. So, I mean, it's sort of most of the things you can do are actually, you know, they will produce better outcomes, you know. So I think, yeah, certainly it's hard in some contexts, not all. I mean, some businesses were way more progressive and so, you know, you just just did what needed to be done. Um, I think um, it's probably the hardest thing was a lot of the work that I did in product development was trying to find a way to bake it into the process in a way that was positive. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the thing you find out is the more you go into sustainability is that it's more about the system than it is about the product. And so certainly when you get through to companies like, you know, ultimately with a company like Ubco, it's actually all about product stewardship. So what's your responsibility at the end of life? Yeah. That's the crux because 
Um, you know, now great friend John Gutsakis, who, you know, worked at Formway. I mean, he's been all about the product stewardship, right? Absolutely. Um, which is, you know, because I think that's where the rubber meets the road with the complex electronic products. I mean, you can certainly improve your selection, you can reduce con- materials, but because of the nature of the materials, you simply can't throw them away. You need to recover those materials. So what is going to happen at the end of life? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I remember doing a project for Dell um, and, you know, their version of sustainability was essentially a bamboo kind of laptop lid. And I was like, well, <laughs> not really. You're, I said, that's the least of your problems. What about all the stuff that's sitting in your laptop? I said, if you want to do a project which is looking at what happens to the product over its life and what happens at the end of life, that's actually really interesting. And I would be interested in doing that project for you. But that's what you need to be thinking about. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, apparently Philips, I remember listening to a presentation at an event I was at and they they only know where 5% of their product goes. Okay. 5%. When was that? Oh, it's probably 10 years ago now, but, you know, they may not have a better better idea today. Who knows? (laughs) Let's let's hope they do. (laughs) Oh, jeepers, I remember back in the day, you know, it was 20 years ago plus, you know, and and Hewlett-Packard, and and they just kept talking about planned obsolescence. So they would obsolete their own products um, before somebody else did. So they were literally designing their products to last a year or two because they knew they were going to obsolete them. So it's just creating. Yeah, and I think part of it has to be uniform legislation and talking to John about it, um, you know, it has to be an even playing field. Um, but in some respects, companies will still move ahead electively because, you know, there are, as people become more and more aware of it, um, then, you know, they can choose companies that choose to take a more responsible attitude. And the whole concept of a product as a service, like that was a concept when I was first thinking and researching sustainability and eco-design. Uh, you know, it was a concept, but it wasn't a reality. I think now technology is at a level where it is a reality. Yeah. And there is definitely the ability to amortise. You know, like I'm a total gear junkie, so that sort of fights against sustainability a little bit. You know, I like a new ice axe or snowboard or whatever, but, you know, like I generally try to buy stuff that is going to last a long time. Yeah. I mean, I think each of my mountain bikes has lasted 10 years. Yeah, and I, I do it. remember that big old thing that you tried to race at Motapu. <laughs> still got over the line. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, I think that, that sort of stuff is product stewardship becomes quite important from that perspective, yeah. No, very cool, very cool. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, you, you know, you are arguably ahead of your time in, in, in terms of voice of the customer. And as I said, that's both of our backgrounds. And um, I um, also tried to promote it and sell it when I was at um, Infact as a, you know, way forward for companies that would come to us with a, you know, we just want you to do this product. And I'm like, well, you know. Is that really what 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 you want? Um, and I found, you know, I used to hit a brick wall a lot. Um, yeah. So I'm 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 interested to know um, how you found it and how you got through it with Locus. You know what? Yeah, well, I, because I was always quite commercial, I sort of operated in a space that was slightly different. And I do remember talking to a couple of our clients about it who were involved with the Better by Design program. And I think like our sort of version of it because it was communicated commercially 
it put it into into a context that they understood and could place a value on. Yeah. And even the way that I presented information to them, I was com- I was like mercenary about the way we communicate in the documentation standard. Yeah. So I'm saying, well, look, this has to have it has to have the depth of a science company. It has to have the rigor of a science company, but it has to have the polish of the best agency you can get, right? And you put all that stuff together. So one, the thing is, when people receive that, then there's perceived value. Because yeah. one of the things about design research, if someone just did it, it's not enough because it's, it feels too ethereal. Like we used, I used to force it to be baked into physical outputs and describe it in a very commercial way which made it more palatable for look at the end of the day a business person is a business person yeah they're not they didn't choose to be a ux researcher or a you know so they're the things that bother them like they are going to be commercial factors so you know if you communicate that in ways which they understand then i think that helped it but also let's be clear that you know Design has sort of undergone a, a sort of phase change in the New Zealand economy, you know, through lots of different people's efforts. You know, people mm-hmm. like Peter Haythornthwaite and mm-hmm. Mark and, Pennington. Yeah, all, the, all these people. Peter by Design. Yeah, yeah, and you know, like I don't necessarily subscribe to their specific formula. Um, but obviously what happened is design became more ubiquitous and then design thinking has become more accepted. Um, And so, you know, design has become a much more kind of accepted discipline to the extent now that, you know, I think in in probably a lot of businesses, it's certainly there to a much greater degree than it would have been 20 years ago. Yeah, I I, I agree. I agree. So moving on, <clears throat> you know, you uh, you came across UBCO at um, at field days uh, as part of your competition um, back then. Um, it, you know, it was, it was a really cool concept and all the rest of it. But at the end of that, it was you know, a prototype turned up, and uh, then you moved across. Yeah, so that it was sort of. I think it was 2014, um, it was a pretty raw prototype. And so I met um, Ant and Daryl. Ant and I got on immediately, you know, like we just sort of always got along, had the same sort of sense of humour. And so I gave them our innovation word. At the time it was um, the Steed uh, two-wheel drive workhorse, I think was the brand. So, you know, because both of them had some experience and, well, a lot of experience in the e-bike sector, um, you know, the focus was really initially on developing the brand. And so our team, you know, Carol Nordic, who was working mm-hmm. in Locus Research at the time, she, you know, led the development of the brand Ubco. Um, and then, you know, I think we agreed to form the company at the start of 2015. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you had a foot in both camps. Okay. Yeah. So, you, you know, like I said you were, uh, earlier, you were the you know, owner and MD of uh, Locus and then you're um, CEO of uh, Ubco. How did that go for you? Um, so for, for 2015, so I was always the more commercial one of the three of us between me, Daryl and Ant on Upco side. So, you know, I really led the commercial side, yeah. including the capital and fundraising and things like that. 
Um, and then when we did the significant capital raise post going into production um, at the start of 2016, you know, I then became attached as sort of, you know, when we were developing the investment documentation, one of the conditions was that I would become the CEO. And so I had been managing both companies completely um, up until that point. I stepped back and, and talked to the team at um, Locus and I said, look, I I don't, I mean, I didn't, it's probably the same as that choice to go to product design. I can't tell you when yeah. the decision happened or why. I just sort of reached a conclusion that, I again, I was quite commercial. So my experience within Locus is this long arc of working externally for companies, but in a very invested capacity. So they would almost see me as a, you know, extension of yeah, yeah, the, yeah. Of, of the company yes. in many respects. Yes, which you've um, done with a number of but, companies. But, I remember. Yeah, but you would be restricted in some respects as to how far you could go always. And I think we would, you could go quite deep into some amazing products, but again, you were also still limited by the commercial delivery. So I became more and more interested over time in the commercial delivery. And so I think for Abco, it was really saying, okay, well, you know, I'm going to give this a go. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna, I want to commercialise something full spec and take it to the line. And so I asked the team, you know, would you guys be willing to step up um, if I step back? Um, there were four, four senior staff at the time um, that sort of essentially provided the leadership function within Locus. And they agreed. And so basically July 1, I started formally as a CEO of Abco. Um, and we set up a board um, and like really Locus operated successfully up until 2020 when I, um, you know, I talked to our, our chair and said, look, you know, this is like, it, the, the main issue for me over time was really we, Locus always handled like high risk, really complex stuff. Yes. Yeah. And so... And I think in 2020, the guys were in another bender, you know, it was some, it's like, you know, you're signing off half a million dollars worth of prototyping. And then, you know, like I was sitting down with the team saying, okay, well, like, have we, in terms of communication, sign-offs, approvals, because, you know, your primary risk management is obviously communication and documentation, making sure it's all being done well. And I think at that point, I was like, shit, you know, I'll probably reach the point where both, it's just unmanageable. Right. Um, Even though, you kind of have a team running it. It's just not manageable. Right. And so 2020, um, Abco acquired the people and the assets of Locus. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which was a, seemed like a, a very... It was convenient because yeah. we had also been using a lot of Locus resource um, technically and from a marketing perspective. And so it kind of bought the horsepower um, in at the point at which Abco was growing and could afford it. Yeah. Because yeah. um, obviously, you know, with it being provided externally, you know, if Abco needed to turn the tap off, it could, you know. Um, so it, it was really hard because, I mean, um, Abco is super demanding for scale and complexity. Um, but Locus is really demanding because of the complex subject matter. Yeah. And you're operating at the very early nascent stage of products in all situations. And so some of the decision making that's required in there is really quite hard to define. It's very, it's nuanced. Yeah. 
Um, And so, you know, like you do need quite a lot of uh, experience. And horsepower, yeah. yeah, yeah, To be able to make those decisions and make the right decisions. Yes, yeah. At that early stage where there's so many unknowns. That's right. It's not purely experiential. Um, You know, know, it's, it's not really purely about the number of sort of years you've got on the clock it's a bit more complicated than that some of the stuff i mean what i found in product design was that i probably had i had as a learner i always had a real interest in a lot of different areas and so i just sponged stuff all the time and then that just kind of it sort of it exponentially kind of improved your decision making so you could make decisions much more quickly because you've got that holistic view. Yeah, and I know. Like, and, and if I think of the criticisms that would get levelled to me at times, it'll be a lot to do with that. Like, I have essentially already made a decision, right? But I haven't taken the ten people with, you. with me on yeah, the journey. Yeah. yeah, and you know, like, it's not intentional, but it's and again, but some of it is just I did the work. Yeah, right. I did the work that multiplied the learning that kind of then helps you do what you do better I mean I think by the time some of my f- friends had 10,000 hours practice I like had already clocked 50,000 you know it was very different yeah, yeah. and I was very fortunate like in Design Mobile I mean I got to create a design team got to be in senior management at a young age I could see what a good company is like and how it's run in a really organised way and so you were able to kind of you know very much learn that stuff firsthand. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, <clears throat> exactly. And, and also at, at, with Locus, I got to work alongside some really good business people that are great at doing stuff and planning things and communicating and you just look at all the way that they do things and you just absorb that over a 15-year period. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was sort of fortunate. By the time I got into Upco, I was just telling a, a chap I was mentoring the other day, I said, look, I was, I was actually really lucky because I got, I got to see what good looked like. Yeah. directly sitting beside the person and go shit yeah, yeah. that's how you do it yeah, <laughs> and then you no, no, and you nice. applied that into how you did things yeah nice hey, i wanted to come back um <clears throat> you talked about um when you joined Ubco, you know from that commercial side of things and and, and you were there sort of in the capital raising and and all the rest of it now you know, for those people that are listening, you know, I know there's uh, there's people here looking or wanting to do their own thing and looking for direction and all the rest of it. And you know, as we know, uh, particularly in New Zealand, but probably everywhere, you know, raising capital, uh, you know, you know, getting 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 the money in behind you is is probably one of the hardest parts of product development. Um, so I'm interested to hear about your experience, both in terms of you know how tricky it was and and um and then you know how you went about it yeah well i think the first thing was that in 2015 i wrote a capital plan oh yeah yeah when we um, put down the shareholding and subscription agreement it said that the three of us all understand that capital will be required in this business to develop it to its potential not just once but probably a multitude of times are we all do we all accept that? So you, you kind of already had this concept baked in at the start with a view. So planning is an important part. Understanding that, and this is probably the critical thing that most people trip up on, is it's not just about the product, right? This is a business. So yeah. tell me about the business. Yeah. 
And most people think, well, the product is amazing. Why don't you get it? It's like, well, (laughs) the reason they don't get it is because you haven't described what the business is doing. And it's a a pretty big, it's hard because like I empathize with the entrepreneur, the inventor, because I've worked with and sat alongside so many of them. Mm And sometimes, you know, you feel the pain because of, you know, perhaps someone can't get through to that point of understanding. But I mean, I think I was asked to, I did a, the first sort of uh, rev- presentation looking back I did on IPCO was I think 2020. It was for like semi-permanent or something, which is one of the design conferences. And I put up this like real rusty diagram that I did right at the start, but it was the business diagram. It said, this is what the business is going to do. And this is how it makes money. Yeah. Yeah. And now it took five to six years to achieve that super simple diagram. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I showed the diagram at the start and then I showed what it looked like at the end, but I said, they're the same thing. So you had this thing as a vision to set your course and keep your compass bearing. Um, And then raising capital, it is about, um, at every stage you raise capital, the people you're presenting to are different, the things that sweat them are different, and the things that are interested in are different. So obviously private, your first capital with the people that take a stake on the business because they are personally, they have some, personal affinity to what you're doing yeah it's a real personal decision yeah pure private capital with individual people and then you move into like we moved into angel which is a more you start to have criteria people analyzing different facets of what you're proposing to do and obviously you know not always agreeing with you i mean like i had a person at the start of upco who just literally you know his product uh, he was the guy who's doing product due diligence yeah. and obviously given my background it's an area that i felt reasonably strong in yeah um and you know it caused us it was quite quite hard because you know it's an inve- it's a potential investor doing the dd on behalf of the angel organization that's and due, dd due diligence yeah due diligence yeah, yeah. yeah. thanks jp yeah um and so that was a tough one um because he and i just didn't simply doesn't didn't agree Right. I mean, his his process was, you know, you should build 150 of these, test them for a year, and then sell something. I said, and I was like, who the fuck is going to fund that? <laughs> no one. <laughs> so that ain't going to work. Yeah. I'm a pragmatist at the end of the day. So Upco is very iterative, and the goal is get a product out as soon as you can. Yeah. 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 And then validate it. You might not be perfect, but the one thing about disruptive products is it's like um, Christian Clayton's Innovator's Dilemma. The thing is, mm-hmm. like, and Great I think, book. yeah, in that book, you know, one of the examples was the hydraulic um, excavator, which went up against the cable excavator. Now, yeah. the biggest excavators in the world today are still cable operated. But the, the, the market is dominated by hydraulics because people, the, it changed what was possible. Mm. It can't do everything a cable can do, but it can do a lot of other things. And so with disruptive products, it's all about that. So in the case of Upco, it's sort of like, well, it's not as, it's not as powerful as some of the combustion products. It's, not, it, it's got a lot of things that isn't. But mm. then it rocks up at 
a total weight of 60 kilos, which is less than half of the skinniest alternative you can find, mm -hmm. and makes no noise. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I think that I remember Daryl sent me this video which he had made and it was like one of the things we used a lot in the early days and it was essentially at his brother's Warrapa farm, I think his brother and his wife riding and at first I thought, where the fuck's the soundtrack? And then I was like, oh, right. <laughs> there you is could, no soundtrack. You could hear the, and you could, you could literally hear the dog <laughs> running beside the bike on the grass and so, you know, the thing is, with disruptor products is saying, well, that some of that stuff was more important than the things you couldn't do. Yeah. And in the, in the early adopter phase, obviously there's only going to be a few of the people that are prepared to take a punt on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, before you you know before you start to kind of make the product better and better and better, so that you answer all the questions and you solve the problems, yep. and then yep. you get into more of this mainstream <clears throat> sort of area. So. Um, how many, again, get back to the old capital, how many capital raises did you go through? I'm trying to think. Um, first one we did is 215, which was pure private. That got us into production. Second one, which took about sort of six to 12 months. So when, you know, that was probably half a mil. Second one was 2.9. Yeah. And then third one was probably, it was definitely over five. It might have been more like six and a half. Yeah. And, and where was that money starting to come from? Yeah, was so, that so, offshore so, money then? Yeah, so first one, I mean, I went offshore super early, right? Yeah. Like we, I, in 2016, which, you know, we'd just received our first chunk of capital, I'd just started, I went straight to the States. Right. And by June the next year, um, you know, I had one of the classic... Uh, <laughs> Anyone who will know me will appreciate this, but I, um, I, was, I was, my first well, was no, it was my second trip, but this one was like really targeted. I was essentially going to meet an investor, yeah, and I was going to be presenting to a group of investors in the Pacific Northwest, um, and it was literally the end of December. It would have been I don't know, post the twentieth of December or something. It was like really late, Christmas, yeah, and. Um, obviously, Northern Hemisphere, <laughs> Southern, Southern Hemisphere. I was uh, scheduled to leave at what I thought was 7 p.m. I was watching my son's volleyball, uh, water polo match, and then suddenly I was thinking, oh, my God. I started to feel slightly queasy. And then I ran to check my schedule, and I'd misread it. It was 1,700 hours. Oh, no. 5 p.m. <laughs> it was 4.30. So I literally had to, with a great deal of swearing... I had to cross the harbour bridge of Tauranga at peak traffic. Yeah. I parked the truck on the curb, chucked the keys at the lady, and I basically had to leave all my bags. Because if, wow. if I didn't make the connecting flight, then I never would have got to... <laughs> I would have basically missed everything. It. Yeah, and got, not got so the meeting. So I, I turned up in um, Oregon in the biggest ice storm in a decade, and basically a pair of shorts, a t-shirt, and some jandals, <laughs> <laughs> and a backpack. Oh mate, that's that's just a kiwi. That's a kiwi story so through it, and through. It took me a little while to bring up the courage to tell this guy what had happened, and then he took me to Macy's, and I we re wardrobed. <laughs> 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 yeah, good old Bob. Yeah, right. And so, so that was. So then you, you yeah, got so your you, so capital you got, from. Yeah, so so weird. And I so we got part of that first raise. Um, I managed to kind of 
it was a slightly hybrid form. So what we did is we had um, a dedicated distribution company that was funded by US Capital in the States and I sat on the board and that entity invested back into the New Zealand company. Because what people don't appreciate is most US investors, like the idea of investing in a small New Zealand company is just like, what the hell? No way. Yeah, yeah. Especially back then. Yeah. It's probably slightly better now. Maybe. I think it's mm. changed a little bit. Mm, there's, there's de- bit yeah. It's definitely more accepted now for like Silicon Valley companies and other investment firms to invest more offshore. I mean, I know that through my own experience. Right. But back then, you know, so that was, and that was really important because we were able to establish a beachhead yeah. and with really experienced US business people that really understand the difference of, what a, you know of operating in the US. I mean, if you just go into the states and expect to operate, I mean, you're in for a very big surprise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. just such a technical economy, you know, with so many rules and regulations that would just blow your mind apart. Yeah, and state to state. Not yeah, yeah, I mean, if you wake like, up and that's your business reality, and you've you know been brought up in that system, it's fine. But if you just go there from equivalent of a single small state. Mm. to an, an economy that big. I mean, you know, having people that really know and understand it made a big difference. Um, and then from there, the next step was bringing on the first venture capital firm, so that was GD1. Um, and Chintaka Ranatanga really led that investment. Um, and for him... Where's he based? He's based in Auckland. Right. Um, but for them, they had a big North American thesis, right? So the fact that we were already in North America was really important to them. Yeah, okay. So that turned out to be critical to get the venture capital investment. And then I'd been working with Snowball Effect and Simeon Burnett um, for a while. I really rated them. I mean, I think in the early days of working with them, people said, oh, well, crowd equity, what are you talking, you know, these guys. But they they are super professional, super focused on marketing, really organised, and they were great. And so when we did the VC round, it ended up being predominantly Snowball and GD1. Right. Yeah. So, and, and so Snowball was like crowdfunding? Um, well, they have two parts. One is wholesale, so if you meet the eligibility criteria under in New Zealand's FMCA, and then you can take up to $2 million a year in crowd equity. Right. But the thing is, no other pla- – you know, if you just talk to another group, you can't get access to that. We were involved, I think, so early that, um, in fact, the formation of how you actually aggregate those investors on your cap table was – we were actually a part of that process. That's how early it was. Right. So, you know, we put them all into a single nominee, which means you have one investor on your cap table. That's – how it got managed, you know, so you don't end up with several hundred investors at too early stage in your progression. Yeah, okay. Um, and then from there, the next step beyond that was strategic. So, and that was a, a much, that was a big step up from there. So, so that was more like, so it probably went 500, 2.9, six and a half, 15. fifteen million. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then from there, that's, it, it has probably gone up again, I think, from there. Right. So talk to me about the grief of uh, raising capital. Um, well, you've got a business to run as yeah. a CEO. So, you know, that's more than a full-time job. Yeah. Um, and then you basically, you've essentially know that, you know, because you essentially, if you think you've got a monkey on your shoulder, I've got a monkey on my shoulder who's holding a clock that's ticking to the doomsday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because there is a point at which you will have no more cash. Yeah. Um, 
and so I think a lot of the ex- I was lucky because I mean I had some probably pretty experienced op- entrepreneurs around um, that I you know people like Steve Saunders you know who started mm-hmm. Robotics Plus mm-hmm. with um, mm-hmm. Alistair Scarf and many other, Steve started many other businesses is that he um, you know it, it, it's you've got to have a really clear view of the cash runway and you know how to get the best out of that and that's and a lot of it what i actually learned a lot of um dave darling at pacific edge because i used to work quite closely with him and he was really good in terms of structured capital raising linked to critical milestones within the company's progression yeah and i you know you watch that and it's like you know you so you've got to you've got to achieve certain things in order to reach a trigger point where you've crossed the threshold where someone will give you the next level of capital because your valuation's going up at each step yes and so that isn't necessarily always purely linked to sales you know it's got to do with progress on a variety of fronts it could be product it could be markets it could be you know it could be lots of different things and you've also got to at the same time you've got to try and ensure that your public profile i was always quite surprised that you know, I didn't think experienced people were impacted by public, uh, like TV and things like that, but they are. Right. I mean, I've yeah, sat in yeah. investment committee meetings where the most experienced person in the room was talking about the fact that they saw this thing on TV a week ago, like it mattered. <laughs> and I was like, what? You know, are you serious? Like, yeah. yeah. So we always maintained a really strong public profile mm-hmm. and you can't just decide to do that one month before it takes sustained effort each and every month to create the events and the achievements and everything else that then are connected with you know media and and it doesn't just happen yeah and so that was really intentional because i think the thing is you know over time what it meant was the name became more and more widely known, which made it easier to do the things you needed to do, including raising capital. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I'm just labouring this point because, you know, I come back to what I said earlier. It's, you know, capital is one of our biggest constraints for Kiwi companies. So it's really cool to hear the story and it's really cool to understand, you know, how you went about it and the steps you went through and, you know, you know and the, the, the steps on the way through. In fact, the number of raises you've done yeah. and all that. So well, I think it's also people, I mean, some people are just not honest with themselves. I mean, like what I've had to say to people, I know that this person said to you, this is the excuse they gave, but the answer is no, right? So it's a no. Think about it. <laughs> you know, you've got to you've got to remember. You might get a lot of no's, but you know, you've got to be perseverant. Yeah. But also, you've got to be like straight up honest and and understand that you know every time someone says no, that's to some extent you're getting feedback about thing about, about your proposition. what you're doing and yeah. how you're hitting yeah. and have you got it right? Have you got the story right? Yeah, have yeah, you got yeah. the model yeah. right? Yeah, <clears throat> you've got to keep working on that story. I yeah. mean, I think before. Before the last major capital raise that I did, I mean, you know, I probably spent three months redoing everything. Yeah. Um, and I think our stuff was already good, but I was like, this is not good enough for where we're going. And so you had to redo everything. And that was, that definitely um, was very important for, you know, the, the capital raise that I did probably would have been, I think, in the first half of 2021. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, very cool, very cool. Um, 
So, yeah, yeah we probably – I think we, we've covered that a lot. I, I really like what you're talking about in terms of your, you know, um, your, your capital, your runway, um, and also putting together the capital plan. Um, I think that's uh, – that's, that's, Planning that's, is key. People yeah. just don't think about it. They, no. they, you know, and I think if you mentally adjust to the fact that, you ha- that you've got this plan and it doesn't stop, then I would be – Essentially, as soon as you finish one capital raise, you're essentially resetting for the next, mm. you know, with the view that, you know, there are going to be a different set of expectations and hurdles you're going to need to cross. What are those? What what become the new milestones that you need to cross? Mm. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, that's really valuable advice, and I'm sure people are listening here thinking of doing their own thing would, um, you know, that'd be um, some really good information. Yeah, and communication with your investors is really important too. I mean, I didn't... I probably didn't communicate as often as I would like, but I think I did comprehensively um, when we did, you know, like in quite a lot of detail and talked about a lot of the dynamics and things that, you know, were impacting us or, you know, things that were going well. And I just, I didn't sugarcoat it. And I think people really appreciated that, that, that honesty. Yeah. And certainly if I had an investor um, call me up and wanted to talk about something, you know, it doesn't matter what level they were, I, I did you know, I, I talked to them about it and, you know, again, you know, openly answered their questions and, and talked to them about what we're working on. So I think that's also really important because people forget just because you, you know, if you think around that, someone who invests today could be part of your whole capital pathway. You don't know that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one yeah. thing you'll learn over time is that, you know, some of the people that can, can invest the most um, honestly, you would not know if you tripped over. If you walked past them on the street, you'd have no idea. Right, yeah. 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 They're just yeah. like really, you know, they can be quite discreet, humble people, uh, very successful, uh, but, you know, so you've got to treat everybody with the same level of care uh, that you'd expect to be treated yourself, really. Mm. Oh, very good. Great advice. Uh, so... <clears throat> We've talked about this a little bit, but um, you know, setting up Ubco um, as a small startup. Um, so, so we talked about the um, cash flow challenges and all the rest of it. But you know, how did you find running it out of New Zealand, you know, out of Tauranga, New Zealand, too, uh, where you've got Chinese manufacture, and I'm keen to talk about that a little bit. Um, you know, some of the stories you've, you've told me around that, and then you, you know, but your major markets are, you know. Offshore, like the US, for example, and all the rest of it. Too keen to hear your challenges. And well, the first one is, you know, I spend a hundred days offshore a year. Yeah. So, and I think, uh, <laughs> yeah. And you know, I know entrepreneurs that would double that number. Uh, which Straight is for your miles, mate. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it certainly is for that. Mm. Um, so. Uh, you know, like that's it, beca- it is important to establish relationships, and obviously, COVID I think was probably very challenging. Like, if you were starting a business and you had to create those relationships, I, I'm not, I wasn't quite sure how someone could do that in that in the environment that's been there for the last couple of years. I mean, mm. if you didn't already have the political capital that you'd banked before that, the yeah. relationships, you know, the people personally, um, so. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's really important that I think if you've got to understand New Zealand's so far from, you know, these markets that, you know, you definitely have to invest a lot of time in getting into those markets and, and really understanding the dynamics, the peoples, the cultures and, um, 
I think probably one of the hardest things I found was sometimes actually getting New Zealand staff to kind of really understand. It's like, yeah, I know the meeting's at nine o'clock your time, but did you recently open your um, browser and check what time it was in Lithuania? <laughs> you know, in other yeah. words, don't be a dick. Yeah. Don't yeah. schedule a meeting at fucking three o'clock in the morning, you know, like just, just think about it. It's not that hard. And sometimes, you know, when New Zealand was COVID free, you know, that was one of the other things. It's like, guys, you know, like you're able to cruise around here willy nilly. These guys have been locked down for six months. Mm. Empathy. Like you need to just try and make sure that you appreciate and understand their context a bit because it's like super hard. Mm. Um, that is the key for Kiwis, understand the context of different cultures and, and sometimes and how they it, You know, mm. frankly, it's not there. You know, I mean, I was born overseas. I immigrated to New Zealand. I probably come with a sort of baked in already perhaps a slightly higher level of understanding about it. But but I do think sometimes, you know, that was hard. Certainly um, managing in geographic distance and you just have to bring in the modern tools to be able to do that. Um, So we bought in you know, tools like uh, 15.5, which enabled you to understand, you know, I mean, if someone had a crap week in New Zealand, you could actually see that. And What's so 15.5? It's sort of like a, an employee engagement tool um, in rough terms. But it, it would enable you to, you know, some someone fills out a weekly pulse. So say like someone might be a two out of five, that's not a good score, right? right? I'm generally a four out of four kind of guy. <laughs> and I might pull a five, once or twice a year. Right. Three's a bad week for me. Two would be an absolute shocker. Right. So it's kind um, of a, this is, where, this is how I'm feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and like that was helpful because you might be somewhere and you see, you know, this person over here has just pulled a two out of five and clearly things, you know, it's been a, a not a great week for them. So, you know, you might ask someone to check in with them or even contact them yourself. So that's how, you know, the geographic distance, it's two ways. When I wasn't in the office and when I um, was in the office, you know, it's the overseas people. But when you're out of the office, it's the people back in New Zealand that you're you're missing. Did you do that in, just internally or did you do that with some of your clients as well? Um, did, did they, any of them? No, it was, it was more just for um, core, you know, core team, you yeah. know. It did really help because then you can also look at the overall pulse of the company and I had sort of a target of trying to make sure it was at or above four. Right. Um, And that's not always possible. I mean, I think, you know, if you have a look at the the advent of things like COVID, say March 2020, I guess, um, obviously that's a peak period of uncertainty within this whole pandemic. so, you know, there's a lot of things you can't promise people. And if you're a company that's like essentially having to raise capital in a very, very uncertain capital market, you know, you have to essentially act conservatively and, you know, preserve your cash flow and your can your runway. And, you know, you're not going to make everyone happy. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So how did you... Um how did you choose your uh, distributors over? Um, we'll come back to manufacturing because I'm keen to talk about well, that the one, too. The one in the <laughs> States was, I mean, I think you, you, we had a form. I mean, you're essentially looking for evidence of 
organised thought for a start. So, you know, I mean, essentially what our process was people had to fill out a form and they fell into two camps. One is you're a pre-existing distributor and two is you're not. And then, so that's two different camps. For, for other products, you mean? <clears throat> when you say pre-existing? Well, some people will approach you. It's not un, that uncommon for a new product. Would, it, would see the potential of what you're doing and want to establish a distribution entity and distribute your product uh, from yep. zero. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and people would have to present a, um, you know, they would have to develop some support material, and again, through that process, you're essentially able to judge, you know, um, how organised they are, and also their level of interest. If someone is unwilling to fill out there, then I wouldn't even take the call. Cultural fit. Um, yep. Certainly. Once, once. So once you've crossed. The threshold of I will, you know, and you, you, you know, I just couldn't meet with anyone. I just haven't have the time. So they had to produce this material for me to review it, and then I had to feel that that material was sophisticated enough for us to meet. Yeah. Um, and I probably I I don't think I really got to the point where you had more distribution inquiries than you know, than work to do, if you know what I mean. Because essentially with the US being such a huge market, Australia um, and, you know, Europe, we also decided quite early on that we wanted to control the primary markets. Mm -hmm. And so that did mean it's a slower road. Right. When but, you say control the primary markets, well, if you what were your primary if you, markets and what did that uh, mean? It's probably Europe and the US and, and probably Australia. It means that you, you can set a distributor up, but the view is that you ultimately will acquire it one way or the other. The distributor? Yeah. So okay. we acquired the US entity in a non-share cash transaction, a non-cash share transaction, sorry. Um, and they became, you know, once, you know, so once the US investors got to know you, got to see the company develop over time, develop a greater sense of confidence at that point, you know, we acquired the entity. Right. Ah, very interesting. But also that was capitally driven. Right. To go to the next stage past uh, venture first venture capital investment, I felt that not controlling that entity essentially would be the single biggest factor against raising strategic capital. Right. So... Well, I actually know it was actually before that. It was actually the um, GD1's investment. Um, and so I actually went and it was actually, f that's right, it was earlier that year, um, I went and negotiated the agreement and then that was present. I came back to Chuck and said, I've negotiated the acquisition. There it is. Right. And then they invested. And then that with, they yeah, invested yeah, on the back of that. Yeah. Oh, very cool. It took a little while <clears> to <throat> go through all the tax and accounting and that type of complexity to get the transaction done so it didn't have any tax consequences for anybody. Mm -hmm. um, There's a bit of complexity in that, but, you know, uh, the, the deal was done quite early on. Yeah, so... Um, like so that, you own your distribution in the US and also Europe now, do you? Yeah, in Europe. Right, yeah. And very then cool. the UK, we had a very <clears> good distributor. And so that was just fortuitous. I mean, very organised guy, um, very well invested into the ag market. And, but, you know, we'd also sort of contemplated doing the urban side of it. Um, but I think the reality is that, you know, it, um, John was a really good, you know, he's a really super organised guy and, and, you know, they really understood what we were doing. And so they're very professional in the way they operated. So, you know, it was a good relationship. But they also set up a standalone entity to do UBCO. 
So that also meant that downstream, it would always present the possibility that you could acquire the distributed entity as UPCO UK. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Which would give them a benefit, right? They would get a a financial benefit out of that if that were to occur. Yeah. Um, So, and I think, you know, if you read the Gallagher story, they also did, they, you know, he set up a lot of um, distributors and then... um, and then they ultimately acquired them. I don't, you know, so, but I think the strategy was for the really big markets that ideally you wanted a pathway to become the distributor. Yeah, right. Because I think for for long-term acquisition or success, controlling your markets was, I think, something to me seemed quite important. Yeah. Yeah, no, very cool, very cool. I think people will be very interested to hear that, you know, <clears throat> how you extend out to those markets. So uh, manufacturing in China, yeah. I know there was a um, couple of issues there. One thing that was really interesting to me, I'll, I'll never forget you telling me this a few years ago, that, uh, um, that the, the manufacturer you chose eventually, um, they would make your year's production in half a day or something, some <laughs> yeah. stupid number like that. Yeah, well, you know, pe- people used to ask us who are your biggest competitors and, and saying, what about Yamaha, what about Honor? I said, Jesus Christ, they're the least of your problems. I said, the guys that are making our product are already making 6 million electric motorcycles a year. <laughs> <laughs> Honda makes 17 million vehicles in total. Right. So, these so guys pe- people are don't huge. understand the scale in, in that market. It was absolutely massive. And obviously the government had pushed electric stuff for um, obvious reasons with you know, pollution and things like that very early on. The Chinese government? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. They, this, their transition was it happened quite some time ago, and, and particularly in the light vehicle classes like what we were make, manufacturing. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's... The, the scale is great. So we went from sort of, we went, I mean, I would say our first master assembler was um, their own, uh, often the ownership structures, often these companies will be owned by very big companies. Yeah. But they may be managed in a slightly smaller capacity, which was the case for our first master assembler. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and they were also Chinese based. Yes. Yeah. Now, look, the reason for being based up there is really the supply chain. I mean, you know, the, they're all specialised suppliers. You know, so you had frame builders, wheel builders, yeah. drive manufacturers, battery manufacturers, loom manufacturers, yeah. brake manufacturers, You know, dedicated verticals, and you know, we frankly didn't have the capital to you know, invent everything in the system. It's, you know, you were focused on this full product integration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, the first big change was when we had to go road legal, that had a different set of intrinsic requirements. Yeah. And a lot of the regulators would ask things of you that our existing manufacturer either couldn't or didn't want to do. Right. And so there was also a weird rule at the time, which meant that to export a VIN code from China, you needed to produce 300,000 units a year. Mm-hmm. So that means you had to go to one of the big guys. Yeah, okay. So yeah. we were really lucky. We had a guy, an NZTE in Beijing, mm-hmm. Johnson Wang. Right. <laughs> I had to tell poor old Johnson that he was... <laughs> 
He had named himself after two things twice. <laughs> after a few uh, too many bijous, the poor guy was beside himself once he realised. And I said, it's fine. <laughs> But, yeah. um, but anyway, Johnson was brilliant. He actually um, knew he was a supply chain guy. Yeah. And he had quite good contacts. And so we presented to probably about three or four companies, did their full um, tour, and ended up with um, a company called Yardia, which was the biggest um, company of its kind in China. And, you know, they, they were very strategic. I, got, I remember talking to one of the ladies later and I was like, well, why did you get guys actually agree to do this? And she goes, well, we knew about you like 12 months before you came to us. Really? Our engineers were looking at your product and wow. were talking about it. And so I was like, oh, well, that's quite cool. Um, but the reality is you've got a multi-billion dollar company, you know, we're the tiniest of tiny little things, you know, and... You simply, you know, our product is every single thing on it was different to their product. Right. Everything. The yeah. way it was assembled. And obviously things that mattered to us didn't probably matter to them. I mean, we, you know, if you imagine knocking about on an on a asphalt road in China as opposed to kind of knocking about on a dairy farm in New Zealand, yeah. you know, they're, they're yeah. not in the same yeah. universe in terms of the wear and tear. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, yeah, I mean, it's in the end, as the product became more sophisticated, it became clear to me that, you know, we really just weren't like our going to fifth generation product and everything was changing. It was going to be too hard. And at that point, we then, I, I was really, it was sort of very fortuitous, but in the 2019, I basically did a, did a big China-Taiwan stint and found essentially the new manufacturer and we agreed to migrate. So set it up at the same time. So this was to the, to yeah. the big manufacturer? So we went to, <clears throat> we moved from the super, super big guys to a family-run business that was over 50 years old that was Taiwanese-run and operated but had facilities in both uh, Taiwan and China. Okay, that's so. So they they were your third manufacturer, then, yeah. were they? Yeah. So you went for a smaller one, then you went to the really, really big one, and now you you, so you went back sort to of, yeah. And they, you know, obviously, um, and so that that was that was good because I mean I could talk to Percy, who's the managing director, and you know one of the owners, um, part of the family, and you know if you had a if you had something you needed to talk through, and so it was easy to resolve stuff. Whereas obviously Yardi is at such a scale that you know that it was probably possible at the start, but um, but not possible at you know once things sort of kept going. Interesting. Yeah, and so we were, um, and obviously uh, because I was much concerned about product progression in China. You know, Yardia was sort of like ninety-eight percent internal supply, so the the Chinese internal market has a certain set of requirements, and so product progression is not necessarily. They did. I mean, they're still very sophisticated. I mean, mm. I think I got asked to present at one of their big product launches, and it was a million-dollar launch. Right. I mean, the screens I was presenting on were the size of Texas, you know, um, and the videos and the product presentations were probably something you would see on the stage of, you know, the biggest American companies. Right. Yeah, I mean, very slick. Yeah, yeah. Um, but again, the things that we were, I mean, 
I suppose as part of being a New Zealand company, right, I mean, we were concerned a, a, a about more kind of practical things to do with the product and its evolution. And so, you know, for us, you know, durability, longevity, um, robustness, all of these sort of things, you know, became like really important for the development of the product. Yeah. <clears throat> and so how did that, how did that affect <clears throat> your choice of manufacturer do you, were they just like um, just whacking out um, um, well, we had to we essentially supervised production that was the only way you could do it safely Tom um, Haywood who went on to start Kids Ride Shotguns very successful yeah. company yeah. Um, Tom was a CPO so Tom used to go up there you know and he was essentially Sergeant Major right. Chinese guys really liked him because you know he was Right. He's, he's got to give an orders. <laughs> yeah, cool. I think we've done a bit of work for Kids Ride Shotgun, a great yeah. little product as well. Yeah, yeah. So <clears> it's, <throat> it's um, you know, you, all of us did tours of duty up there. I mean, you, you know, you really did have to pay attention to the detail. And obviously product quality improved over time. But I think when you're going to make – and also I disaggregated production so that the battery was manufactured – separately and shipped separately from the bike and that was because of again the technology changes within the bike and also shipping and logistics efficiencies and so again you were sort of protecting your position as you developed yeah trying to you know and even like with you know the um if you think around the tariffs that came in in north america i mean you had to restructure so we basically moved to assembling in the states okay Oh, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. Was that under uh, under the Trump? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, probably, but look, I mean, yeah. it's it's probably to be honest. I think the whole econ that economy was moving in that direction anyway. So, um, with a big em emphasis on local production, so it was always strategically going to be the right thing. But you've got a global supply chain. I mean, we were still shipping PCBAs out of New Zealand. So the vehicle management system, the battery management system, so your core brain components. Right. shipped out of Auckland from Quick Circuit. Yeah, okay. That's, mm. that's quite clever. Because my next question was going to be around, you know, were there any concerns around um, intellectual property, uh, IP, and, and in these my, big companies ripping you off? In my career, the only people that have ripped stuff off that I've seen are New Zealanders. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I always have to laugh when people ask me that. It's like, yeah, <laughs> well. <laughs> um, I don't, I mean, the thing about the Upco's product is it's in a regulated product context, right? So you can't just ship a fucking DOT approved vehicle into the States without a shit ton of paperwork. Yeah, right. Yeah, if yeah. you try, I mean, I remember Yadi were going to ship product into the States and I said, look, I need to call a meeting with the most senior person because you guys have helped us and I'm going to do you a favour. Right. Like, and so they convened this call and I said, you need to stop now, immediately, because if you're, you're a very big company, you are going to get sued. Someone will know, find out who you are, and you're going to get your ass handed to you. Right. And so they stopped it at that time and sure. reconsidered how they were going to do it because they didn't have one-tenth of the paperwork. Now, we had the advantage. We had, you know, Bob... Um, uh, who, you know, Ralston, who helped set up the distribution in the States, he was, like, fastidious about that stuff. Right. 
Yeah. And so we dotted the I's and crossed all the T's when we entered that market and, and any significant changes that we made, you know, we we were careful. Yeah. But as a result, you know, I mean, you, you can sort of see, because that, that market is very much, you can get away with stuff, but obviously the way things are policed is obviously getting sued. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's um, <clears throat> yeah, a really interesting point for the listeners, you, you know, and it's it's something that you know sometimes Kiwis miss is the, the amount of regulation that you need and not rocket um, science. Most it's, products, it's, most most important products have regulations. Yeah, yeah, and but so, it is easy to miss it, and it's it's easy not to know. And and like you say, you're going in with your eyes closed. Is mm. I mean, a massive company out of China, you would mm. expect that they know that stuff, but well, not it's because it's because they don't have. They have a different kind of complexity. I mean, their bureaucracy centres on different things mm. than America does. Yeah, and you know, it's probably the way that they enforce things is different too. Yes, I mean, the US is permissive until it isn't. You know, because all of the stuff is sits below the waterline, but there's a lot of it. Mm. Interesting. Right. Um, yeah. So. <clears throat> I think we've yeah we've covered quite a bit of ground. Um, um, so <clears throat> one thing I wanted to talk about. So I think we'll yeah we'll probably park um, Ubco for the time being. Um, yeah, you way back when you ran a, a sustainable um, design resource for, for Designers Institute New Zealand. Um, yeah, how, how do you think? As Kiwis, we're we're going in that space. Um, <clears throat> what are we doing well? What are we not I, doing well? What could we improve on? I mean, I, I probably got quite disillusioned about it in some respects. Not and and you know, essentially, my focus has really been on commercially doing, setting an example because I felt that was the best thing I could do. So even with the way that I've cooperated, you know, pushing into you know product as a service with subscription product stewardship, how you develop the product, making sure that it's engineered for the future, all those sorts of things. But in terms of how New Zealand's going as a whole, um, it it is very difficult to see tangible progress. Mm. Um, I I think there is a greater level of, of intrinsic awareness but at the same time, most of the um, metrics have worsened over time because obsolescence has worsened, you know, rates of kind of repair have worsened. It's lots of these things have got worse. Right. And so, I mean, like, make no mistake about it. I mean, the, the challenge from the sustainability side is um, climate change has definitely dominated the agenda to the extent that some of the other things have sort of fallen by the wayside. Um, I mean, obviously, New Zealand is bringing in product or has brought in some limited product sort of stewardship uh, legislation through certain product categories. Um, But, you know, it's, it's, there's so much more to do. And really, it's hard to see it being able to be done voluntarily. So what's your recommendation for New Zealand and what would you like to see? I mean, I think there's a few things like there should be communication standards around, particularly recycling. Um, I think I've always taken issue with some of the labelling on products because under any practical version of New Zealand system, some of that stuff is not recyclable yet. 
it still has a recycling symbol on it, which means a five-year-old identifies that as being recyclable. Mm-hmm. So in terms of New Zealand's commercial law, you know, if something is, it should be, it should be your job to make sure that under New Zealand's existing framework, it is recyclable. If it's not, don't put the bloody sticker on it. And then we do need more sophisticated product stewardship because consumption has increased mm-hmm. and you do have to have more sophisticated on um, in-country recycling um, so that we are actually reprocessing those valuable materials in New Zealand and not exporting the problem to another country that hasn't got the infrastructure to deal with it. So can you see how we might do that or can you see that there's a, uh, a way through for us? Um, well, the government regularly chucks multi-billions of dollars at all sorts of stuff. How about chucking it at this? Yeah. You know, because it, it, it will be a problem for New Zealand um, in future years because obviously most of the materials associated with these goods and services are toxic and so you do need to directly address the problem at one stage before it becomes... Look, I think like there is progress being made. I mean, um, Tauranga's recycling scheme recently improved somewhat but it's still two grades out of seven and as you know as an engineer... Uh, seven is a catch-all for pretty much any thermoplastic that we would elect to use. <laughs> you know? So I think, the, I mean, look, it's sort of something that needs... People need to acknowledge that it's not simple. Mm-hmm. I think that's the first thing. I think people are sort of pushing for a simple fix. There isn't one. It is complex. So we need to have more complex responses. So you need to essentially set the system up to be able to respond to that. I definitely think recycling is probably a critical thing where if we can have more of it and if it's more sophisticated, then it will lubricate the ability to reprocess stuff and then, you know, that that probably goes to the right place. Do you think you, <clears throat> future for you, you might be looking at how you could talk or work with the government or um, influence um, yeah, it's certainly possible. Um, again, I'm probably like more, I like doing things and so that might make that a bit hard for me personally. Yeah. <laughs> or, um, <laughs> you mean getting stuff done versus sitting around talking about it? Yeah, because I probably concluded that showing people what's possible is one of the best ways. Yeah. Because if someone says, no, you can't, you go, well, actually, I just did. Here yeah. you go. Yeah. Or you set an example and people go, oh, that's really cool. I can do that. And so that then might, you know, potentially inspire the companies to also try and work that way. And so leading by example, I think, is, is one of the most unregulated, highest potential ways of creating an impact. Because as you know, I mean, I spent a lot of effort in the 2000s on the resource side in New Zealand. But I, you know... All of the work that we did, the national government came in and all the work that we did to set up the Sustainable Design Working Group in New Zealand that was, um, you know, helped to set up by the Sustainable Business Network. Um, mm. One change of government, funding gone. Right. Interesting. And, and they criticised me when I stepped down. Um, and I said, well, I'm running a business. I said, my time was voluntary. All you did was pay for a facilitator. And you're saying that... Who's, who's MFE? Oh, right. Yeah. <clears throat> and so, I mean, short of saying, you know, a few colourful words, um, 
you know, but that's what they don't appreciate is that. So the problem is that that's politically expedient, whereas doing something like UPCO is not, mm. right? It, it says you can create a product that doesn't use petrol, it uses electricity, so that's good. Um, it's designed for the future in terms of product stewardship. It's you're thinking about the business system that's going to support um, subscription and all the financing mechanisms that are required behind that. So again, you, you're cutting a lot of ice when you go through these things and you're learning how to solve some of these problems. Mm -hmm. And even what you then trip into with some of those things is that probably one of the big things to go to a product service economy is you have to actually reformulate some of the tax rules because you actually trip into some really awkward tax law, um, you know, around because it's just simply never been written for um, product as a service. They have never envisioned that. Um, so the way that they deal with finance and operating leases drives the thinking, yeah, and it's okay. not it's not what you're actually trying to achieve. Um, so you have to work with that law at the moment in terms of its requirements. But do, the thing is, I mean, as we talked about earlier, it's like, what's the real problem? And yeah. so, you know, so if you say product stewardship's an issue, move to a product service economy whereby the product has always been taken back by the company best qualified to do something with it, which is the manufacturer. Yeah. It means you need all, you know, my, my friend Eric Zeiderfeld runs a company called Mevo that, you know, it's car sharing. And so that's like part of where the future is, right? Because people just, it's like a subscription. I mean, you've got whole families that just use the Mevo service in Wellington instead right. of owning a car. Yeah, okay. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, well, uh, yeah, watch the space and you know, hopefully we can start start moving on. But it's, you know, from my perspective, it, you know, it needs guys like yourself that have got this really progressive thinking who, um, you know, <laughs> can put up with the... Uh, <laughs> All the grief that comes along with it, but you, you know you've got to have the progressive thinkers in there, influencing government. Otherwise, it, yeah, stuff's never going to change. But, <clears throat> but so on, on to that note, you know what's uh, what's next? What's next for you? I know you're doing a bit of mentorship yeah. for the likes of Soda and and um, um, there in the Bay, yeah, and. Yep. Um, uh, yes, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, I never really saw myself self as a mentor, to be honest, <laughs> but it has been quite cool, um, you know, working with companies at a really early stage and being able to share some of your experiences with them and help them essentially prepare, hopefully, for that journey. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so that's, that's actually been quite enjoyable, and the, they're quite cool ideas and products and people, so that's, I've enjoyed that. Um, I'm not too sure. I haven't really, you know, part of the reason, I mean, you're stepping back to just give yourself some space, basically, because, um, you know, your head's filled with normally so much stuff all the time, you just haven't got any space to think about things. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, been doing a lot of, I think, mountain biking, and climbing and other stuff like that, which I enjoy. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I think I've still got quite a lot of commercial things that I'd like to achieve. Um, and I'm not quite sure what that looks like at the moment. So <laughs> I need, I, I'm need. i still thinking about it. But I've been enjoying working with companies in the meantime, um, like I've been working with um, Cucumber, which is a software technology company based in Tauranga 
um, started by Jody Tipping. So you know, obviously, you've met them. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, a really cool, <clears throat> cool bunch of people. So I've been enjoying working with them. Cool, cool. <clears throat> now, a couple of last questions. Um, what, what was yeah? What, what do you reckon is your biggest achievement? Yeah, well, yeah. Oh, giving know. you your biggest buzz um, throughout the years. I definitely think it's still product. I think, you know, where we managed to get the product to, um, you know, I think once the product got to a certain point where you could see it across certain, you know, valleys of death and, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you know, you'd resolve certain product problems and it sort of got to a point where, you know, like I think, you know, you you know, you sat on the product, and you're like, yeah, you know what, this is this is actually pre- it's getting there. You know, and it's not. You still, I'm I'm a perfectionist, so I'd never see it as done. But you actually felt proud where you'd got to, and so I think that that was. I definitely got a lot of enjoyment out of seeing the product use in really cool locations. So you're talking about the uh, Upco here, yeah. or you're talking about because oh, you've done yeah, a lot yeah. of really yeah, cool I mean, things. It's, it's probably hard to. Oh, look, yeah, actually, it's interesting you should say that. I mean, I think probably in 2020, um, you know, we cleaned up at the Design Awards, and that that to me was really fulfilling because, you know, design's a big part of, you know, what I do, mm-hmm. and so that was a recognition at the highest level of the whole business yeah. right because they have this award value of design and so for Upco to win not just the gold but a purple pin yeah. which is discretionary yeah. um, in the value of design and then to win a gold and purple pin in the product wow. and, yeah, and, cool. and to win the sustainability award which I established in 2004 that was probably quite special so you won all three of those <clears throat> yeah yeah, three goals and two, two purples. And so I, it was a complete surprise. I didn't really expect it. Um, and so it was, I think that was, because um, there's a lot of grind embodied mm-hmm. in that uh, award, I think. And particularly, like with the value of design thing, it's attention to detail on everything. It's mm-hmm. your packaging, it's your assembly instructions, it's your training manuals, it's your... You know the label that goes on a fork. It's the bracket that holds a cable on. It's everything. Yeah. And so I think, um, yeah, certainly. And I think it was made. It was probably nicer because I didn't expect it. Yeah. As yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. That would and have been so, fantastic. You know, because I've sort of, I've sort of probably been in and out of active engagement at an industry level, just simply because of the commercial roles I've had. And so you know that was. Um, I think it probably was, that was probably one of the things I felt like a genuine sense of achievement in, yeah. Oh, well done. And, and from my perspective, extremely well-deserved, mate. You yeah. know, I know you've been <laughs> doing some amazing stuff over the years. So to get well, there's that a lot sort of stuff that you do that's just below the water. I mean, it mm-hmm. might be, it's like, you know, when someone's talking, you know, a lot of the problems you work on, some of them, are, they actually, they, they might produce products but it's like if you're working with a company to help unpack what's going wrong with their R&D or innovation, I mean, that's 
that's not going to win a design award, <laughs> you know. Yeah, but extremely important. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely, yeah. because you know, like it's it's the thinking that's important. Yeah. yeah. Uh, awesome. Um, right. Well, listen, I think uh, think we've probably talked talked about it enough now, so we might uh, we might wrap it up. And um, yeah, anything anything in particular you wanted to talk about yourself, or should we just call it a day? No, no. I mean, it's just, I think we've probably covered a kaleidoscope of of the things that you'll probably potentially trip over or might have to deal with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, it's. Um, I'm sure if, if anyone's listening and they're keen to, t- um, you know, tap into your, uh, you, you know, your understanding, your brain, you know, and your thinking a bit more, I'm sure they can uh, uh, get in touch with me, and I'll put, put them in touch with you. And yeah, uh, you know, got a bit of you got a spare time at the moment, <laughs> That's right. out there helping helping uh, a number of uh, companies. So um, it's an opportunity for. Um, some of our listeners who, who might be looking to, to do something or need a hand um, I'm sure it's, uh, it, it's you're not going to be available for long so uh, yeah be worthwhile uh, um, yeah hopefully uh, them getting in touch and maybe you can help some help somebody out sounds good cool excellent Tim thanks very much mate and, no worries uh, JP pleasure yeah, yeah we'll talk soon see ya